You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Gym Day Podcast is brought to you by Kroger, fresh for everyone. Now batting, number one in our hearts. At least he'd like to think so. It's the Gym Day Podcast. Hi, hello, and welcome again to the Gym Day Podcast presented by Kroger. I'm the aforementioned Jim Day, or as I like to say, I'm merely Jim Day because we have another special guest here today. He is a member of the 1990 World Championship Cincinnati Reds, a nasty boy, and one of the most exciting pitchers I've ever seen in person, that being Rob Dibble. Rob, how are we doing? We're doing great, Jim. How are you? I am fantastic. You are coming uh, to us from your home in Connecticut, correct? Yes, yes, Middlebury, Connecticut. So you are now, uh, you've been in the media realm for a long, long time now, and you are back on the home front hosting the Rob Dibble Show in Connecticut. How's that going? It's been going great. I mean, we we do the Yankees, Red Sox, Mets games. Uh, We do for football, we'll do Giants. Um, we're now the home of UConn sports. So, you know, it's, it's been great because I did national stuff for like 17 years. And then I've been doing this now for six years and it's, uh, you know, right, right where my dad did it for 50 years. My dad was a news director. He was one of the original teachers at the Connecticut school of broadcasting. So, um, you know, broadcasting's in my blood, so to speak, but you know, he was the one who kind of when I was retiring from baseball said, and this was in the mid nineties that sports talk radio would be huge one day. And he did pass away in 1997, unfortunately with leukemia, but he was right because I got into it in 96 and I've been doing it ever since. And so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm still doing it, still having fun. And, uh, you know, every day is, is a new adventure. He was, uh, your dad, his name was Walt, right? He was a longtime yes. uh, radio news director, I want to say, in Hartford. Is that right? So he, yep. he had, uh, I guess, the news in your blood, not necessarily sports as well. Um, but did you always see, even when you were playing, that, hey, I'm, I'm probably going to follow in Pop's footsteps here? No, never. I, you know, when I was growing up, one of my brothers is a fireman, and he just retired after 30 years. My other brother's in the Navy. I actually wanted to go in the military, Marines or the Army. And had I not gotten drafted uh, by the St. Louis Cardinals out of high school, I definitely would have gone in the Army. They were like, listen, you know, we'll teach you to be a Green Beret. We'll, we'll let you play baseball. And, you know, you just got to commit for like four to six years. And I was all in on that because my brother was doing so great in the Navy. So, I mean, I, it, it had things been different for me, I would have been in the military. And then when I retired, I was 30, 31 years old. And I eventually did make a comeback in 98. But um, I was studying to take the state police exam here in Connecticut because I was like, all right, you know, I got full pension from baseball. And uh, if I do 20 more years and I'm 52, 53, 54, somewhere in there, I'll get 20 years pension uh, from the state of Connecticut. Then I could go, you know, do something else. But, uh, you know, I, I was never so, you know, down the baseball, you know, rabbit hole where I didn't want to do something else. So when I, when I finally in 96, in the winter of 96, was just kind of hanging out here in Connecticut, uh, Chris Berman and I had uh, uh, season tickets to the Hartford Whalers. And so we'd sit next to each other at the hockey games and stuff like that. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? You know, I know you've had a couple of shoulder surgeries. Um, you're thinking about retiring. What, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be a cop. He's like, all right. So why don't you come hang out? And and they used to do radio for 14 hours on weekends. That was uh, the whole thing for ESPN Radio back then. And, and it was uh, Keith Ber- Keith Olbermann and Chris Berman doing a show. I sat there and I was, you know, they were asking me questions one day uh, about some of the trade deadline stuff and and then some of the free agent stuff in the off season. And um, someone heard it and offered me a, a a chance to go out to LA and uh, you know, I go out there to do this audition and I land the job with Fox sports news and got a two year deal as the first long-term contract I'd ever got in my life. I got eight one year deals in baseball. Um, 
and and I went out to LA and started doing my my thing back in 1996 97 uh on TV on cable TV back in the day wow now I did not know that Berman was involved and it involved Hartford Whalers which may they rest in peace um, yes <laughs> that's awesome and you're sitting in with Berman and Keith Alberman two of the pioneers yep. In the industry, as you look back on that, on that now, how incredible is that? It, it's quite incredible because you know at the time, like you said, my dad was a newsman, and I loved the news, and I loved you know covering different stuff. I'd go with him on you know it could be a house fire or you know some some kind of car accident or whatever. My dad would go, and I'd sit there and I'd watch him do his thing, like some two minute, three minute hit for the news, and you know, then we'd go home and, and I always thought that was great. Then I started watching DJs do their stuff. And, uh, I was like, I was fascinated by it. And, you know, so now I'm sitting there watching these guys and, and you know, they were just, it was nonstop. They didn't have a lot of commercials. Um, and you know, you just kind of had to wing it and, you know, use your, your sports knowledge and get some interviews in. And, you know, there's some other guys around too, Mike Golick, uh, Tony Bruno, some of those guys were, were getting their start. Chuck Wilson was another great guy on ESPN radio. And so, you know, eventually when, when it, it got a little bit bigger and you started getting more content, I was doing two shows cause I, you know, I didn't last long out in LA. I came home after my father passed in 97 and, uh, I got hooked up doing a couple of different shows in the afternoons on ESPN radio when they went to weekdays. And then that blossomed all the way to the Dan Patrick show, which I did for five and a half years. So, you know, had I not sat in and watched Keith and Chris do their thing, I I don't think I would have been as, as wanting to do the radio as when I got into the TV, when I did the TV, it was very lucrative. And I was like, yeah, this is really cool. And then when, after three months, when they went a different direction and, and I found myself out of work, I was like, wow. And my dad explained to me, he's like, Listen, that's how hard the industry is. He says it's no different in radio or TV. I mean, it, and you, I don't have to tell you, it's a very difficult industry. It's not for the faint of heart. And, you know, I've been let go a few times and, and, and you have to kind of dust yourself off, get back up and, and try to get back in the game. Oh, no doubt. I mean, even though I somehow lasted this long doing, uh, covering Reds baseball, but, uh, I was let go a couple times in my career. And like you said, you just got to regroup, man, dust yourself off. It's a fickle business. You got to keep moving. (laughs) And uh, it's harsh. I I try to tell people, you know, some of the, some, you know, creative feedback that I've gotten was, you know, Hey, that sucked. Yeah. He's like, (laughs) thanks. Uh, You know, so you got to have some thick skin as well. Yes. Um, the Dan Patrick show when you were on there, uh, it, I mean, it's still such a great show. Dan does a great job, but, um, it was a classic show back then and very, very popular. And they still have people calling in, giving their height and weight, yep. which, and with the ding, with the bell, uh, which I love. And it, a lot of people that I'm sure that listen to the Dan Patrick show now, when they don't get into it, are not sure of the history of this, but this came from you. Can you right. take us through how that evolved? Because it's funny. All right. So, you know, when I retired, I was physically destroyed. I mean, both of my shoulders, I had, uh, you know, ruptured my labor in my pitching arm. I had a torn labor in my other shoulder. And, and when I was living in L.A., I kind of, you know, befriended a personal trainer. And we used to work out together. And he's like, listen, you've never lifted heavy in your life. Why don't you start lifting uh, bench pressing because pitchers shouldn't bench press. They shouldn't do a lot of that stuff to get thick in the chest and the shoulders. You got to be, uh, you know, loose and, and flexible. And so now I start, you know, lifting really heavy. And by the time 99 rolls around 1999, I've been lifting for two years straight. And now I, I mean, I, I was kind of like a muscle head. I, I was, you know, six, four, two fifty, two sixty. Um, you know, benching well over 300 and thinking, Hey, I'm, I'm stronger than I've ever been in my life. And so now when I start doing the Dan Patrick show, I was still lifting at, uh, you know, gold's gym in, in Connecticut. I, I, you know, had moved back here and, 
So it just kind of, you know, Dan used to always bust my chops all the time, you know, what are you weighing in today? And I'd be like 6'4", 260, you know. And, and so then uh, Phil the Show Killer would ring a bell. And that's how the whole thing kind of started, where we, we just laughed about it. And, yeah. and Dan was amazing because he was a great teacher, especially on interviews and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and he was really big on trying to find subject matter on a day-to-day basis uh, that you could get people – you know, that would want to listen and, and tune in for as long as possible. You know, a lot of the things that I'm still doing to this day. And so that, that was kind of one of our benchmark things where, you know, people would tune in and you get them to, you know, you kind of break the ice with the, you know, what's your height and weight. Yeah. You know, so that, that's how that kind of came about. And, and it's pretty cool that it's still going to this day. I mean, I'll get people that are calling to my show uh, locally and do that. And it doesn't really resonate because it has nothing to do with our show. Right. So it's just, it's, but it's very cool. And, and he was a really, really good teacher on a lot of stuff that I've, I've been able to carry with me for the last 20 years. Yeah. He's a terrific interview. I've actually, uh, learned from him over the years. Uh, but he used to bust your chops too, because you used to, I don't know if you'd inadvertently bring it up. You'd be talking about something. You'd be like, listen, I'm 6'4", 260, and this guy. And then he would just laugh at because right. you would just <laughs> bring it up. I, I just love that they that. They, oh, no, he was he was it. great. He was great busting my chops and, and very respectful. There were some people, you know, a lot of people didn't respect, uh, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, any ex-athletes getting into the business. Right. And, and when we were over at ESPN TV, You know, there would be like some 22-year-old or 25-year-old that would be talking trash to us in the Baseball Tonight meetings or the Sports Center meetings or whatever. And, you know, have no idea that a lot of the guys sitting in that room, the NFL guys, uh, the Mark Malones and the Sean Salisbury's that, you know, the the Mark Slayers, a lot of these guys had played, you know, over a decade in the NFL. And they would be like, well, I think you should talk about this and I think you should talk about that. And so Dad kind of used to bust our chops on that stuff because he, he had a lot of respect for the athletes and he knew exactly what you'd go through in a lot of those meetings and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, one of our funniest things that we used to, you know, I said, how many innings did you pitch in the big leagues? You know, and some people may have thought that that was serious. No, that was, that was because I respected him and he respected me. And it was, you could get away with that. Yeah. Now, I think if you did that today, people would be like, wow, I can't believe that they said that stuff. They, you have to have a rapport with your partners to where you can really push the envelope. And I've had a couple of partners. I had a guy flat out, you'll love this, this story. I had a guy flat out quit on me in the middle of a show and I was doing a, a Fox, a Fox radio, a national show. And I just become partners with this guy. And every day I would call him and I'd be like, dude, I know I was hard on you today, but it's just radio. It's entertainment, right? You're good with it. He's like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm cool. cool." One day, you know, he's doing his show from Seattle. He turns his ISDN line off and quit. That was it. (laughs) He'd had enough. He'd had enough of me and my, in my mouth and, and me busting his chops. And it was just like, wow, I, I guess he really didn't uh, like having his, his, uh, his chops busted. So yeah, everybody's different. You know that, because, oh, yeah. you know, some guys can take it. Some guys yep. can't in this business. Well, on Red's broadcast, we bust each other's chops all the time. Yeah. We've been working together for so long. Now we've basically kept the same group together. Um, so I, you know, I get killed on a regular basis and then, <laughs> Uh, some of the fans, they or the viewers, they 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 take it. They'll like write me like, "Wow, I really feel sorry for you." I'm like, "Nah, they're just it's it's all in clean fun. Don't worry." Yes, exactly. Uh, even uh, Marty Brenneman just killed me on the air on a regular basis. Even on the radio side, he would just crush me all the time, which you know I wore as a badge of honor. But um, if you were, I've always kind of wanted to ask you this, so I'm going to ask it. If you were covering Rob Dibble, the player, as Rob Dibble, the radio host, because as a radio host, let's face it, in Sports Talk Radio, you're looking for unusual things to happen, to talk about, things outside of the norm. And when you were a player, that was a lot of times you. How would Rob Dibble, the host, handle Rob Dibble, the player? Well, I I would ask him why 
he did a lot of the things that he did. I, I think that, you know, what people may not have realized about me, I was very insecure. And, you know, in, in our time, when I was with the Reds, um, when I first got called up, they were like, well, you know, you're going to be sent down in two weeks, so don't get comfortable. You know, so when things are like said to you that way, you know, you don't really, you know, give that information out. You know it, but nobody really knows it. So I I probably press the envelope harder than everybody else because of my background and growing up in New England, uh, you know, never thinking I'd make it to the major leagues. And then once I did, I didn't want it to end. So there was this huge fear in the back of my mind every time I took them out, not, not just occasionally. Every time I went out there, I tried to be perfect. And when I wasn't, that's when I would usually, you know, blow a gasket. And so, I, I mean, I would, I would try to, and I ask guys all the time, I try to do my research and try to find out background information as to why something might be breaking down. Why, you know, I, I've been very fortunate doing this. In fact, just like two weeks ago, I was able to interview Ryan Lee for like the third or fourth time. And that guy went through hell. Oh, I, I man. talked to the, you know, the Ben McDonald's and a lot of other guys that were, you know, first overall draft picks and stuff like that. So I, I've been very fortunate over the last 20 plus years to, to kind of really be able to dig into to guys' psyches. And a lot of guys are very similar to me where, you know, you're so, and I don't want to call it paranoia, but you just, you press so hard that failure is really not an option. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, being friends with Paul O'Neill, I know how hard that guy, you know, used to press and, you know, all the other guys that I played with over the years. So if, if I was going to ask me questions, I, I would have been like, you know, what were you thinking when you did that? You know, what, what was, what was really going on in your head? You know, when you threw the ball out of the, out of the stadium, because what people may not realize was the, the, I had already injured my shoulder. It was already really bothering me to the point where I didn't think I could even play anymore. And so, you know, part of that reasoning was to throw the ball in the stands, was to blow my shoulder out so I could get it repaired. Wow, and get really? Back after it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it was not, I wasn't frustrated by the outing. We ended up winning the game. I mean, that was my job. But the, the, the part of it was that at, at that time I was probably taking two or three Perkinan a day uh, or Darvon or anything I could swallow to kill the pain. I mean, I, I was so self-destructive at that point because of my knee injury, my shoulder injury. I was just so pissed that my body was starting to fail. You know, you get to the point in your career where you're like, oh, my God, you know, I'm finally doing well and I made an all-star team. We won a championship and now, Jesus, now, now I'm off the rails physically. You know, so that was a lot of my frustration was – I, I was starting to break down, and I didn't want anybody to know it. You certainly don't want to tell the trainers. You don't want to tell the team doctor because they run right to the general manager, and you're probably going to get either traded or sent down. So a lot of that stuff was, was just a lot of insecurity and frustration. So I, I would have tried to pick away at that. I doubt that Rob Dibble, the player, would have ever offered up information if I had asked no. for that stuff, no. because I, at that point I was a, a, I was a huge liar when it came to, you know, was I healthy? Was I, was I not in a lot of pain? Because almost every guy I played with pitching wise was hurt. Every guy, yeah. anybody who ever lies to you and says, my feels great. I'm a hundred percent. They're lying because either their elbows barking or their shoulders barking or some other part of their body, maybe a hip or a knee is, is coming undone. But that's, that's what you do. Uh, to get the job done. Well, when you threw the ball into the stands, you I think you threw it over 400 feet to center field. Uh, one, did you succeed in further hurting the shoulder, and do you think it would have become a thing had it not hit inadvertently hit a spectator? No, I never. That That's the biggest regret I have is, is, is hitting, uh, you know, Miss Porter or Mrs. Porter at the time. And... Uh, because I thought the game was over and I, and I certainly didn't think anybody was still kind of, you know, milling around in the stands and I never thought it would even get over the fence. I mean, if anybody had any idea how bad my arm hurt, uh, to throw it from the back of the mound, and, you know, up into the second deck, I, I couldn't have done that again. I, I know that my teammates tried to recreate that 
and they had they had trouble. Even the guys with the best arms were barely getting it there. So, um, so a lot a lot of it was anger and frustration of, of how badly you know my arm hurt. But honestly, you know, I, I think I had some kind of impingement that I I actually shook loose, and so for a couple more years. I was able to kind of stave off surgery before I think it was 94 when it totally ruptured and they had to go in and, and take it out. That was your biggest regret? That one? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Not, not Lou. I mean, Lou and I were friends the next day. Yeah. I think people really, they, they don't understand, you know, Lou hated to lose morning, like the wind, just like me. And I think we had very similar personalities. I've loved Lou to this day. I, I respect him. And here's the thing that people may not know about Lou, and, and whenever I talk about this, I tell these stories. He would walk around to everybody, to a man. Are you okay? How's your personal life? You know, what's going on? How are the kids? How's your wife? Blah, blah, blah. He, he really deeply cared about every player individually. And he knew some of us, including myself, because I was having all kinds of problems in my marriage, um, and ultimately ended up getting divorced years later. He knew when I had been in a fight or something. He could see, he could read my face. And he's like, listen, go, go home, take care of business, come home, come back here by the third inning, and, and it'll be fine. You know, so, you know, I always loved him because, you know, they, they just did the whole last dance and Phil Jackson and Dennis Rodman. Lou Paolo was doing that stuff with everybody. Lou, Lou knew guys that they need to keep their, their head, you know, on straight with their personal life before they could be. Uh, the most effective player out on the field. And I, I, I was always uh, respectful that that guy, he, he knew exactly how to make uh, push the right moments and, and, and read guys on how they, how they were taking that thing. Well, I interviewed Lou a, a few years back in depth. We went down to Florida and <clears throat> you know asked him about you. And he basically re- reiterated the same thing. He said, listen, I, I, I love Rob Dibble. Uh, we were fine after that, and we're fine yep. to this day. We were just two stubborn guys that liked yep. to win so much that, that that butted heads. He he even said when I brought up Paul O'Neill, he said the same thing. He's like, he and I's personality were way too much alike. Right. Uh, we were very much alike, and he kind of said the same thing about you. Um, what? There's been so many stories about that fight that how it started and there's different stories out there. Can we set the record straight of how it came about? Yeah. I I mean, again, my arm was killing me. And before the game, Lou had asked, you know, and and like I said, he would always ask everybody, Hey, you got an inning, got two innings in you, you know, how's your arm and stuff like that. Like he didn't go through the pitching coach. He came right to you. So he always went to the source and you know, the, the night before when I had warmed up, my arm was just dead. And there's, you know, a couple weeks left in the season. And, and I basically, it, a lot of it was my fault because I kind of exploded on him. And I was like, listen, you know, I was warming up last night. I could barely throw. You got all these guys you called up here in September. You're not using them. Why do you use somebody else? And so then he kind of snapped. And, you know, he's like, well, then fine. Don't dress out. Just stay here. And a, a, as, you know, the game unfolded in the ninth inning. He had to use a couple of guys to, you know, win the game. And it was Scott Scudder's first save. So, you know, we did traditional thing. And I think somebody bought a, a bottle of champagne and we doused them with it and stuff like that. And so I'm, I'm getting ready to walk out the door when, you know, um, some reporters come up and they're like, well, Lou's saying that you're hurt. And you couldn't pitch. And that's why you weren't out there and stuff. And I said, no, that's, that's not true. I said, I just needed a day off. And, you know, and, and my response was, you know, I, I, you know, everybody uses profanity, especially in the locker room and stuff like that. So I was basically like, that's an effing line. And they go back to Lou and they, you know, whoever said it to Lou, the way that it was translated to him was like, Dibble called you an effing liar, which was not the truth. But he, he quickly came out the door and then it was on. So, I mean, it, it was, it was a, it was a breakdown from, before the game started to the, the end of the game, um, you know, and, and once again, we won and we're still fighting. <laughs> so that just shows you the intensity that we had on a day-to-day basis. But the next day to, to finish the story, Marge calls us up to her office 
and we're sitting in her office and we hash it out and stuff. That night, I went out and got a save. And Lou came out. He threw some fake punches uh, in, in the midsection in the in the you know high five lines, so, and it was over. And, and to this day, I think people think that you know the one thing that makes athletes great, you know, especially like myself or or Lou Pinnell or some other guys. Which and I can't say that for everybody. After watching Michael Jordan, still ha- has some grudges towards guys to this day. It's unbelievable. You got to get over it. Yeah. You got you got to kind of move forward. Um, for for the good of the team and for the good of yourself, if you held a grudge against everybody that you felt wronged you, oh. man, you you you'd you'd be sitting there all day thinking about oh. how much you did. You know, I don't like this guy. I don't like that. So I I never took it personally. I I felt it was business, and you know, Lou had a job to do to to get his best players out there. I was being a baby, and I probably could have pitched that night, and it just but that. You know, and when you're around everybody every day for seven, eight months, you know, things boil over. There's frustration. We hadn't played well that year. And and I know why he was frustrated with me. And and I know why, why I was frustrated with him because, you know, every, you, you have a different view of people back then. But if I could have stepped back and, you know, known what I know today, I never would have handled the situation that way. And it, it never would have come to where we were wrestling and stuff like that. And I'll tell you what, in the middle of it, it did dawn on me. I'm fighting with my boss. And that's why I tried not to hurt him. I mean, it was a question of I really could have hurt him, and I tried not to. I just That's why, if you watch the video, I'm holding my lockers, and I'm trying to get him to calm down um, because I didn't want him to get injured. I wasn't worried about me. I, I knew how strong I was. I was worried about him because uh, he was a little bit older than me. Wow. So consciously in the middle of it, you thought, wow, this is really happening. This is is not good. Oh, no. On the way home, I called my agent. Now, remember, I, you know, got suspended for fighting and doing other crap. And so I called my agent and he's laughing at me. He's like, all right, what's what's the problem? I'm like, dude, you're not going to believe this. I I got in a fight with Lou. He's like, no way. I mean, and it was Eric Goldschmidt. And Eric was great because he was just like, oh, God, this is going to cost you a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> Spoken like a true agent. Oh, yeah. So he's like, oh, man, he's gonna, you're going to get suspended. Because we honestly, after Jim, when, when I used to get some of the early fights in 89 and some of the other fights and stuff, we, we actually had, um, when I did card shows and stuff, that money went into a, a kind of a fine um like a slush fund, but yeah. for, for, for fines and suspensions because I wasn't making that much money. And so some of the money I made after the world series and stuff like that, that was in a fund kind of, you know, in case I needed it for being suspended and fined and stuff like that. Cause that, that, you know, the team wasn't paying your fines back then. Marge was actually great because back then they didn't like take it out of your, your, your paychecks and stuff like that. But, you know, back in the early days, I, I was, you know, basically like Tom Cruise and Top Gun. I was doing stuff that my, you know, I didn't have the money to pay for. So, so when he's talking about, you know, you, you can't pay for this stuff, you know, that, that was definitely my life. I couldn't afford a lot of the fines and stuff that I had to put out there. There are so many instances when I was younger that I regret the way I acted for sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Boy, don't you wish you had be able to look into the future and have that older person tell you to like cool it. Cause you say you were being a baby and maybe you had a reputation as a player back then. Uh, do you wish that you didn't have some of that now? Um, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, listen, I would fight anybody at the drop of a hat and I, I regret a lot of the fights I got in at bars and places like that. Uh, because being big and large, people always want to start fights with you. And the one thing I was always pretty good at was fighting and not that it was smart. Cause even today now you probably get killed doing some of the stupid stuff that I did. Um, but that, that was one because you know, it, it, it makes Lou and I look like, you know, but, but when I look back growing up watching what the Yankees were doing and, you know, watching some of the fights and stuff, it, it's really family because I have two older brothers. And we fought like that all the time. We'd, we'd fight over a one-on-one football game or basketball game. Um, it, it would get physical and stuff. But then you have to get over that and love these people. Um, and I think that – I wish I would have known that 
to where I could have repaired the bridges earlier instead of letting things kind of, uh, you know, go past the point of no return where you can't reconcile some of this stuff. I was able to, to quickly fix that with Lou, but there's other people in my life that I haven't been able to fix things like that because I was very stubborn when I was young. You know, that was, that was probably my biggest, uh, you know, problem was, you know, pride is a very bad thing sometimes. So that, that was probably, you know, that, that I regret that because it made, me look small, and then I kind of dragged Lou into it with me. Well, there were uh, more unwritten rules in baseball back then than there certainly are now. And one instance that, I don't know, Rob, it, it just cracks me up when I see the video. And it was one of the favorite things that I've ever seen on a baseball field, is when you threw the ball at Desenzo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to laugh about it, but it just... It just cracks me up. Um, and, you know, you had a little bit of a temper, and maybe the temper got the best of you, but what what ticked you off that, that game? All right, so that that's the Andre Dawson game where he, he loses his mind. Yeah. So um, Andre Dawson got kicked out of that game, and it was already just a, an absolute, you know, it was nuts. It was nuts. So I was warming up to just get some work in. So I was I was standing on the mound for a long, long time. So I was, I was kind of not in my right mind anyway. And now I get in the game, and I'd come off a, a suspension for the Eric Yelding fight that we had with the Astros. And so I hadn't pitched in, in almost a week. And so I get in the game, first guy hits a double. Next guy hits a double. Pass ball, guy goes to third. And, uh, and, and you know what guys have done career-wise off of you going into the game. I mean, the one thing that... Yeah, everybody talks about stats and all this other stuff today, analytics. I mean, we were doing that stuff when I played. And and there was a sheet up in the dugout, you know, on, on what everybody in the Cubs lineup did off of every pitcher, especially the bullpen, so that you would know, hey, this guy's lifetime, you know, like, you know, three for six off of you, or this guy is like, you know, six for ten off of you, or, you know, DeCenzo at the time was five for five off of me. And uh, with a couple of doubles. And, and so when he squared up the bunt to suicide squeeze a guy in, that just that changed everything for me. I was like, are you kidding me? You, you own me. And you're going to freaking lay down a suicide squeeze. So, yeah, I was pissed that that guy had – that was just kind of like you're trying to rub my nose in this, this bad outing that I'm having. And you're trying to embarrass the team at the same time instead of just stand up there and swing the bat. And you know, yeah, it was it was stupid. But that honestly, I don't regret that one. I regret not drilling the dude in the back. I hit him in the leg. It was my own my own poor aim. But uh, no, because I, you know what, the one thing I never did, I never showed guys up. I never like pumped my fist when I punched guys out. I struck out a lot of guys. You know that. Oh, yeah. And but that was just business, you know. Um, you know, I, I want to get my team off the field so they can score some runs. And we can win the game. It, I really had a simplified uh, approach to what I did, and so when somebody kind of you know did some stupid crap like that or tried to injure one of my teammates, I, I really took offense to that. Now, could you do that today? No, but when I played, you you didn't show up your opponent. And, you know, and, and yeah, I apologize to the guy. He actually, you know, came to the, the hotel bar that night, wanted to fight. Really? I was like, dude, I, I'll give you the first punch. Go ahead. Hit me. You know, but, you know, my teammates were standing there and stuff like that. And he's like, well, why did you do it? I'm like, it's not personal. You know, it could have been anybody that had done that. It just happened to be him. He came to the right? hotel bar. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I have a lot of respect that he did that too. I was going <laughs> to say right that's that's li- large. Came right into the lion's den to challenge me, so it was pretty funny. Wow, unbelievable! Yeah. I-, I loved your reaction, you know, when the umpire <laughs> threw you out, and then Lou came out like, "What? What? He just ball slipped away." <laughs> that's right, the ball slipped. <laughs> I mean, but then when you break down the video, I ran like about ten feet. You did. Line. You made sure that you <laughs> ran over into the baseline, so you had you know, a, a better chance of hitting him or made it easier to hit him. And I still missed him. Oh, well, you kind of threw it on the run a little bit. Yeah. 
Oh, that was outstanding. Uh, we need to talk about the 1990 team. We have much more with Rob Dibble coming up after these messages from Kroger. To our Kroger associates, for the long hours and late nights, for the miles traveled and the shelves restocked, for making a difference in our customers' lives, for doing so much more than your job, everyone at the Kroger family of brands and our customers say thank you. In a time when daily life feels a bit uncertain, your hard work is keeping America fed. Kroger, fresh for everyone. There's nothing better than talking about baseball, an American original. And what could make baseball even better? Pairing it with the other American original, David Seeds. David's salted and roasted sunflower seeds date back to their start in 1926. Roasted in the USA, David Seeds contain no artificial colors. Their whole roasted seeds are made with quality ingredients for an authentic home-style flavor. Crack into David Seeds, America's favorite seed brand today. Available at Kroger throughout Ranch Country. All right, we're back with Rob Dibble. And, uh, man, I love these old stories. And I love that you're so candid about um, how you were back then and how you look back at it now. Um, this, Unfortunately, this would have been a year, 2020, a anniversary uh, one of the anniversaries of the 1990 team. Um, and at this point, unfortunately, we're not able to celebrate it as much. Uh, that's kind of a bummer, isn't it? It is. It is because, you know, some of the guys are getting older. I know I'm getting older. Um, we, we love seeing each other. Um, I did my first fantasy camp this year, which was fantastic. I got to see a lot of old guys and some other guys that I was meeting for the first time. And that's, that's awesome. There's just, you never get to spend enough time yeah. uh, with your former teammates. And so that it's always, I'm always appreciative of that time because uh, you know, you never, you never know what's going to happen in someone's life uh, with cancer. Now this whole coronavirus and all that kind of stuff. So it would have, it would have been a lot of fun. And maybe maybe by the end of the season we'll be able to to do something in Cincinnati together. But um, yeah, thirty years—it's hard to believe it went by that quick. It really um, is it's... since since we won that championship. You know, there's the Big Red Machine, and they're obviously revered in in Cincinnati. But a lot of people that were were either too young or not born yet that are Reds fans. So the 1990 team is their Big Red Machine. Do you kind of get that a lot? Like, hey, man, you guys were my team. Well, the the thing that I love, Jim, is that when people will say, you know, you made a lot of memories for us or, you know, me and my dad or, you know, me and my family and stuff like that, that's what it was all about. I mean, the greatest thing for me as a player was to play on a team of, of so many great men and, and so many great players. I mean, my entire team was fantastic, and, and I think people, uh, you know, may give the nasty boys too much credit or – uh, you know, downplay the greatness of the team. But when you look around the entire team, they were fantastic from top to bottom. And and so we didn't have any holes, and it was fun to play on. But when people remember it, and it was a, a big part of their life, that makes me feel good because we, we created memories. Uh, we, we gave, you know, people things to uh, cherish for, for many, many years. And uh, that that, to me is as is, is powerful as the championship itself. Because to me, your job is to win championships. That That's what you were getting paid for and, and what you are as a baseball player. But there's also a part of you that's supposed to grow the game and grow it for other generations and uh, and be entertaining. And and I, I hope I was entertaining. I hope I wasn't too disrespectful of, of the game when I played. I know there were times where I regret my – you know, acting like a child on the, on the field. Um, but you know, for that, that year and, and, you know, that moment in, in, I guess, baseball time to create memories that, you know, 30 years later are still as strong for people, people, uh, you know, to this day will, will get after me on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. And just, um, you know, from their perspective, it's a lot different. Because whatever they may have been going through in their life, or they could have been in college or high school or uh, a young kid, uh, you know, they they have fond memories because it was with their parents who may not be with us any longer, or it was with 
uh, other siblings who who may not be with us any longer, things like that. That that means a lot to me um, because the fans were fantastic. I the one thing about Cincinnati fans um, and having grown up here in New England and and my whole family's Red Sox fans um, is is the loyalty that generation to generation, like you said. People love the big red machine. Well, there's people that go back that that loved Ted Klusinski and, uh, you know, that era and the 40s, 50s and Joe Nuxall and stuff. And, uh, you know, that kind of carried over into the big red machine and then the big red machine uh, carried over into the 80s and then into us. And I think that that's the same thing that's going on right now over the last 30 years is that there's a lot of great players that go through Cincinnati some may appreciate it I I think most do that they're there they're they're living and breathing and and uh you know they're they're stressing over losses as much as the players maybe sometimes more and that to me uh was probably the the greatest accomplishment is is fulfilling our our part of the bargain was to win the championship and you know we were well supported on our on our quest well, whatever uh, regret you have or motivation that you had, you were flat out filthy in 1990. I'll look at these numbers. 68 games during the regular season, 1.74 ERA. In the NLCS, you were co-MVP with Randy Myers. Four games, five innings pitch, zero runs, 10 Ks. Let's see, the World Series, you got the win in game two which anyone gets a win in the World Series. I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> it uh, was. And it was against it was against Eckersley, too. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of my mechanics I stole from him growing up. When he Did you really? The Red Sox. Oh, yeah. So um, even cooler to, to get that from a Hall of Famer. So, yeah. So yeah. anytime you could get a win against a Hall of Famer in a World Series game, that's 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 checks off a box for me. You didn't give up any runs in the World Series. And that, that game, too, was the Joe Oliver walk-off hit in the 10th. Yep. It was the Browning baby game. Yep. Um, you guys took a 2-0 lead and then uh, went on to sweep them. Uh, that was such a, a fun year, and we talked about this on the TV show we did recently, but it was such a fun year, obviously because you guys got out to a great start. What, 9-0, and I think you got out of the gates? Yep. Um, and then never looked back. It went wire to wire. But it was not only winning, but it was the characters on the team. You guys were so fun. There were so many stories and characters and so many fun things that were going on, whether it be you guys with the Nasty Boys or Jose Rijo's antics or Paul O'Neill and his emotions or Chris Sabo and his quirks that he had, the greatness of Larkin, and you never know what Eric Davis could do on a daily basis. Uh, Browning was a character. Um it was unbelievable the amount of personalities you had on that team. It was. And and once again, remember, it was Lou's first year. Yeah. I uh, give Bob Quinn a lot of credit. He he molded that team. He traded for it. I mean, I, I, I hope someone writes a book about it someday uh, from the perspective of how Bob Quinn built that team. You know, the, the trading years earlier – for, for Riho and Tim Burtzis and Danny Jackson and, uh, you know, Hal Morris and so many of those guys that if they weren't homegrown, they were like Norm, the, the Wayne Krzyzewski, uh trade for Norm. Norm was a first-round pick of the Expos and became my roommate for seven years. And, uh, you know, have we not traded for Norm, you know, and then traded for Randy. You know, Randy was the John Franco trade. I mean, so that that, you know, team put together and the personalities and then Lou had to manage those personalities, which he did famously. And so did the coaching staff. Um, You know, a lot goes into that. There was a lot of work involved in keeping guys from going off the rails because there was a lot of us that were going off the rails constantly. (laughs) And so, you know, and it it was a nightly thing. I mean, you know, people may look at, you know, that, you know, Randy or Norma, myself or Paul O'Neill or Chris is being very, very, uh, you know, intense. Got Riho was every bit as intense. Browning was his nickname was Bulldog. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Danny Jackson. There's nobody more intense than Danny. Nobody talks about it. his nickname. The day he pitched was Jason from Friday the 13th. That dude like flipped a switch. You talk about flipping a switch four out of five days. 
Danny Jackson could have been a minister. <laughs> the day he pitched, Norman and I see. Here's the thing: Norman and I used to like tweak everybody. That's that was our job. We were we were constantly like picking at people, whether it was Glenn Braggs or uh, you know Paul O'Neill or. Uh, you know, Danny Jackson or whatever, we're always like in, in everybody's business. That's what we did well as part of the family. And man, you would say hello to Danny Jackson. You would, you would get a, a swear uh, response from him, a tirade that would make you laugh all day because he just, he, <laughs> he was locked in from the time he hit the door to, to take, you know, the ball that day. And Riho was the same way. And Browning, Rick Mailer was amazing. The late Rick Mailer. Yeah. You know, so everybody, the, the beauty about what made us great was that everybody didn't want to be the, the weak link. You know, everybody wanted to contribute. Everybody was unselfish. I, there wasn't uh, one guy that was about, you know, me, 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 me kind of stuff. It was all about what can I do for the team? You know, and, and yeah, the starters didn't want us to come into their games. They wanted to win the games. It's changed in baseball today. You know, starters are looking down the bullpen in the fifth inning. You know, Browning would be heated when he'd get lifted. Riho, Jack, they didn't want to get pulled out of the game. Right. They didn't care how, you know, honestly, they didn't care how good we were in the bullpen. The bullpen was like, you know, it, it only used in case of an emergency kind of mentality. And so, you know, yes, we did our job and, and we, we became famous for it. But the guys that were in front of us were just as good or better getting the ball to us. We didn't really have, uh, you know, now you got eight man bullpens. You know, it's 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 ridiculous how many guys are uh, on the back end of a baseball game back then. Most starters went seven or eight innings, and then it was just like, okay, try to clean up the last four outs. Try to clean up the last five outs kind of stuff. And we had an amazing team. Our catchers were amazing. Uh, Jeff Reed and Joe Oliver were fantastic at calling games. Don't get enough credit. You know, our defense was flawless. And, you know, I've looked back and I've looked at the stats and whatever, and, and it looks like maybe they made a few errors, but um, that's because they probably got rockets hit at them. And uh, and the and the official scorekeepers are probably tough on them, but any ball hit hard, our outfielders were running down. Any balls that were crushed in the infield, our guys were, were scooping up. Whether it was Sabo or, or Larkin uh, or Ron Oster, or anybody in our infield, you know, whether it was Benzinger or or Hal Moore. I mean, think about that. There was a lot of guys that could have started and got 600 at bats on a lot of other teams. Some of them were being platooned. Yeah. And, and we were able to win a championship that way. So I, I just think that, you know, everybody had roles and they did them, uh, you know, so well that by the time the ball got to us and someone handed us the ball, it, it was it was it made our job a lot easier. I mean, I, I tell this story all the time when people talk about how good I was or Norm or anybody else. When you have the defense that we had and I could turn around and there wasn't a you know, bad player behind me or a catcher in front of me, Jim, honestly, it was easy to be me. Yeah. I threw the crap out of the ball and I could throw strikes. Um, but the confidence it gave me when I made mistakes that made it easier for me to kind of expand what I was trying to do on the mound. So, um, to, to this day, I, when I think back, I don't think about how good I was. I think about how good my team was to allow me to do my job. Where did the Nasty Boys name come from? Came from Houston, the first trip. Um, and someone asked Randy about how good the bullpen was. And in, in his Randy Myers type of way, he was like, oh, man, they're nasty. Uh, you know, Tim Leona had a knuckle curve and Tim Burtz has had, you know, great command and a big curveball. Uh, you know, Norm had his fourth ball and he threw in the 90s. But remember, Norm was a starter to start that year. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, and then he would be, he, he would be glowingly nice about me and stuff like that. But Randy was, Randy was badass. He was amazing. He had impeccable command. Nobody, nobody could, you know, hit the outside corner like he could. Um, so, you know, he was trying to be unselfish and, and be flattering as a new guy on the team coming over from the Mets. And, you know, in his way, he was like, ah, yeah, they're all nasty. 
you know, so that's kind of where that's where the nasty boy uh, thing came from. Then when you put Norm in there and it became the three headed monster, um, that that's where it took off. Then they somebody made T-shirts. Then we did some posters for charity and sold them at Kroger's. And, uh, you know, it helped me do some of the stuff I was doing off the field with the Citizens Against Substance Abuse. And um, but, you know, in his unselfish way, Randy was the one who started the whole thing. When you talk about Nasty Boys, they, they, of course, talk about you. They, of course, talk about all the quirks of Randy. But was Norm Charlton kind of the quiet assassin, maybe the nastiest of the Nasty Boys? Without a doubt, was the craziest <laughs> of the three of us. Yes. Um, he doesn't get I, a lot of credit. I don't know, credit, or he doesn't get a lot of attention for that. You guys get the attention, but it was kind of Norm that was the quiet assassin. Well, because Randy was closing the games, and I was I was right there, uh, kind of as the, the one that was, you know, lighting the match on the dynamite all the time. Um, but Norm, you know, besides his three degrees from Rice University, one of the biggest practical jokers I've ever played with. Um, you know, like I said, my roommate for many many years. Even when we were making good money, we still had connecting rooms because you know he's he's my brother. He's he's family to me. And he always will be. Um, but, man, he would fight anybody at any time. He would fight his best friend in the game. You know, the, the taking out Socia, that's one of many things uh, I saw, I witnessed Norm do. Um, I, I can't get into a lot of the stuff psychologically that we wanted to do to hitters because, I, you know, I'll let him tell his part of the stories. But, um, you know, our, our job was, I, I wouldn't say to intimidate, but to let you know that, you know, our guys are going to work and do their stuff. And if you try to, you know, impede them from from doing their jobs, like like hitting Eric or hitting Barry or hitting Paul, um, we're going to hit twice as many as your guys or at least throw up under their chins or at their ear holes. That that was the simplistic part of being a nasty boy was that our job was to come in and make sure that our team could do their job and of, of between norm and i norm was way scarier about how he he fulfilled that that part of it and you know you may or may not know the whole mike Sosha thing um that was sign stealing back in our day and right. giving stuff from second base and but to me and norm you were you were trying to cheat our team from from winning games and we couldn't have that 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 was something we discussed you know at length what happened how, take, take. how can we do our job and make sure that guys are comfortable yeah. when they're hitting and so no one had to say hey you know uh like like oral hershiser one time hit hit eric three times in one game guy had impeccable command yeah. that was totally intentional so you know you don't have to tell me to you know, take it out on the Dodger lineup. First of all, I hated the Dodgers anyway, so it was a lot easier. But, you know, as far as part of me doing my job is to make sure that my my guys could do their job in the batter's box and we could win ball games. What, uh, when you say sign stealing, I mean, I know the story. I would love to bring the listeners in on the story, but um, he, he said he's going to get Socia, right, if he's got a chance. Yeah. And I tried to tell him not to say that publicly because he ended up getting suspended. But, um, you know, Sosha's at second base and he's given location and he might, he might've figured out what the signals were. I don't know. Um, but I can honestly tell you with Norm and, and he could get ticked at me for this, but I, I always felt it fascinating. He would cross up his own catchers when he thought guys were on second base stealing. Oh yeah. Ask Joe Oliver and Jeff. No, where, so, so he's throwing that filthy stuff in the catch. Oh no. Oh yeah, He throw a forkball because he felt that the signs had already been relayed from second base. So he would, he would throw whatever to Joe or Jeff. And to me, it was fascinating. Nor no one I, I, that I've ever played with, you know, knew exactly what they wanted to do every pitch. There's times I forgot what pitch was called. And Joe Joe could tell you that. I would be so intense out there. He might say slider, and I still think it's a fastball. And I'd throw a fastball, and he's like, dude, what the hell's wrong with you? I'm like, oh, and it's coming in 100 plus. He's like, I called a slider. 
So, you know, for me, I got lost out there in my intensity sometimes. Norm was never – Norm always knew exactly what he was doing at every, on every pitch. And uh, that that was why he was so amazing as not only a teammate, but a guy that I learned a lot from um, because there's a lot of stuff I wasn't paying attention to that Lou wanted me to hold runners on better. And, you know, looking at the guy at second – I didn't even know there was a guy at second base sometimes when there's a guy at second base. Norm knew exactly what they were doing and, and what kind of – what their hand gestures were and stuff like that. I Listen, Jim, I, I didn't have enough time to pay attention that much. <laughs> I wish I would have known that Norm would cross <laughs> up because I had Jill on the podcast. I would love to have asked him about that. Doggone it. Oh, yeah. I, did, I knew the social story, but I did not know that he would cross up his own catcher or that you would forget what the pitch was called. Oh, Poor yeah. Joe Oliver. I mean, you're throwing 100 miles per hour, and he's thinking his slider. And here comes the. Oh no, joke can tell you. I drilled. I drilled him in the wrist at Dodger Stadium because he thought it was a slider that was going to bend away, and oh. it didn't move, and it drilled him right in the wrist. And uh, oh yeah, he he still to this day is pissed at me about that. <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah. You, Speaking of holding grudges. Was, oh yeah, it's, and that was the whole thing. You know, back then they had like you know second sign shaking off first sign or third sign or whatever some guys are adding subtracting are you kidding me if you put up like a one and then a two and said the odd number was a curveball or something i would have been like get the hell out of here you either wiggle your fingers or put down a one but uh you know we're not we're not playing games I, even a guy on second joe would put down one 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 just to make sure he knew what was coming you know and same thing with reed <laughs> Yeah, I was, I you know, I was a no BS kind of guy out there, Jim. I was, I was not gonna be like, you know, hey, you know, touch your thighs and yeah. uh, touch your knees for different, you know, location. I'm like, are you nuts? Get back there. You want an outside pitch? You want an inside pitch? Set up, and I'm, I'm gonna throw it as hard as I can, and I'm gonna hit that spot. Because for me, I was all about visualization. I teach this to my pitchers right now. You need to see that in your dreams. You need to see that before you even throw it, that it's going to end up where it is. So as long as I'm convicted on what I'm going to throw, I know exactly where it's going to end up. So, you know, a lot of pitchers are just, you know, trying to hit. But I, I want you to be locked in, take a picture in your brain, and then and then all the mechanics come together and you throw it and it, it should hit its location. Tom Browning was amazing at hitting location. You know, David Wells was another guy that I was fascinated by hitting location. So for me, you know, the, the, the last thing I was worried about was what you were calling. I was, I just wanted to know the location and I'm going to hit that spot. Wow. I, I love that you admit that you didn't even know a guy was on second base. Sometimes there was a time and Joe told us on the TV show recently, he always brings up the story Joe Oliver of when Lou came out <laughs> mistakenly came out twice uh, yeah, and it, pulled me out of the game. Yeah, he there was a guy on, on got on first base off of you and said, "Give Joe a chance here because you did have a high leg kick and yep. uh, a longer time to the plate, so you were susceptible to guys stealing base." You say he said, "Give Joe a chance here," and you're like, <laughs> "I guess you should tell the story." Screw that! I'm going to strike this guy out, right? Well, no, it wasn't like screw that. It was just that anytime I would slide step, I'd lose velocity, and usually it got roped off the wall. And so, I, you know what? I'd, I'd much rather have a guy steal a, a base than for me to give up, you know, an extra base hit, you know, because I, I didn't have – my pitch wasn't as effective because I wasn't good at slide stepping. Some guys are amazing at slide stepping and, and not a high leg kick. I wasn't. I was slow. I was deliberate. I had a huge hip turn. You know, I had a lot of stuff going on for me to, to generate that velocity. So, you know, when he was like, oh, give him some time, you know, I was like a one six one eight to home plate. I don't right. care if it was freaking Yachty or Molina. He wasn't throwing a lot of guys out when I was on the mound. Right. You know, so, so, you know, but Joe knew that, and so did Reedy. Yeah, they, they, so they knew. Okay, Dibs is not going to give me an opportunity, so let's not worry that much. Let's get the hitters, and I, and I truly believe that I was way more effective with guys on second and third because you know, not, not that I didn't know that they were there, but I really didn't care. You're not getting a hit off me. You know, my job is to not, you know, and and because, like I said, visualizing 
you know, hitting that spot, the guy's going to hit a ground ball to Larkin. You know, visualizing and hitting that spot, they're going to, you know, a lefty's going to ground out to second base. You know, there's times where you need a pop-up or a strikeout. That was all that was. So, to me, I'm going to hit my spot. You're either going to pop this up or miss it, but I'm going to get the strikeout. So, uh, it wasn't like I was going against Lou yeah. or against my catchers. It was more, I'm a positive person. I know they're not going to score without a hit. So, you know, I, I'm trying to concentrate on what I do best more so than what I don't do best, which is slide step. And I, and I just felt, you know what, I'm not doing my job, you know, facing this guy one time trying to get three or five outs. Um, if, if I, you know, don't do my high leg kick and I don't get um, the optimum placement on my location. Well, now that I think about it, Lou was so into the moment Sort yep. of like you saying you're into the moment. You don't realize yeah. the guy's on base. Lou was so into the moment to finish up the story. He comes, he comes to the mound, says, give Joe Oliver a chance to throw him out. You give your normal, you do your normal delivery. He's still second base. Lou charges back out to the mound. Like, what's the deal? I just told you to give him a chance. And you handed him the ball. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, that's your second trip to the mound. I got to come out yeah. of the game. And yeah, he, he was so intense. That. He didn't realize he'd already been out there before. Uh, yeah (laughs) these people are scrambling the bullpenners are like scattering they don't want to come into the game and who who had to jump on that bomb liana i think liana jim liana eight pitches to warm up oh poor guy but that's funny um i asked you this question on the tv show i'm going to ask it in this format could you imagine the 1990 team in the social media era no no, and, and it wouldn't have been as fun. I mean, yes, they they could have handled it because they're grown-ups and they're grown men and they're professional, but it wouldn't have been as fun. The parties that we had, the stuff we did together as a family, um, you know, I mean, the, the beauty about our team always was when we went out, um, we went out like 15 to 20 guys. It wasn't like three guys. It wasn't like five. It, it was – the majority of the team, it was our coaching staff. So, um, and, and I wouldn't want any of them to have been threatened by social media. You know, I mean, pe- people would have been trying to take pictures with cell phones and, you know, people would have been, you know, writing malicious things on, uh, Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Oh, and, Randy Myers you know, would have been a Twitter sensation. Oh God. So, you know, to, to me, we what what made us the the beauty of that team was the the sanct, sanctity of of knowing that everything we did stayed in that locker room yeah. uh every everything was uh, you know we we ran hard off the field but once we got on the field it was all business yeah it's take care of business do your job but uh you know people people would have crossed lines not us but other people would have crossed lines mm-hmm. to try to to try to get you know, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that people did back then. I'll give you, for instance, like whenever we went to New York or some cities, maybe St. Louis or uh, the West Coast, you know, people would call call our rooms all the time. We didn't we didn't have fake names. Norm and I didn't care. And Norm certainly wanted to constantly, you know, argue with people that, from radio stations that would call and, you know, hey, the Mets are going to kick your butt and blah, blah, blah. blah. And, they, you know, they'd call at three o'clock in the morning didn't bother us we'd we'd still get our rest we'd still you know want to kick your ass even more so that was constantly going on things that were written in newspaper articles stuff like so it it just would have been magnified yeah but you know it 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 would have just made us instead of going out to uh you know to get a drink we just would have had more you know in 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 hotel parties, right. we would have we would have stayed in our rooms more. So it's just it wouldn't have changed our guys for a second. They still would have been amazing on the field. It, it just would have tamped down a lot of the fun we had off the field. I can imagine the all those parody accounts you see on social media. They'll yep. be like fake Rob Dibble and <laughs> fake Randy Myers. And if it was someone creative, boy, they would have had a field day with those. That oh yeah. <laughs> Um, as we, we wrap this thing up, Rob, uh, right now, besides doing your radio show, you said you talking to your young pitchers, you have a, uh, pitching school as well. Yeah. I have a, I have a training facility in Connecticut that we just opened about eight months ago. Uh, it's been doing real well, baseball, softball. 
Um, I, I hired uh, Hall of Fame pitching coach um, Barbara Nalda. She does the the um, the pitchers for the softball. She's amazing. Um, her, I think she has like 19 perfect games or whatever back in her uh, her career. And she played with the break brackets or breakettes um, back in the day. Um, so she's, she's amazing on the other side. And then, you know, we, we, we cater to these, these young kids. Um, we're going to start travel teams and things like that. And, and it's been great. We got to hit tracks. So we're doing all the new analytical stuff for these guys. I mean, my, my, uh, thing now is to give back as much as possible and to, to kids, um, whether it's the pitchers or the hitters or the softball players. And we even, you know, my partner does football. He was a, he was a, um, running back at Fordham. He's a lawyer and, uh, he does a lot of strength and conditioning and stuff. You know, a- athletes, you know, um, deserve as much information as, as they can find. And so, you know, with the coaches that I put together, um, and the training facility that we have, we're, we're trying to help as many kids as we can. And if we can't, We'll try to get you the help. Um, we'll bring in people to, to help these guys. You know, I mean, we're going to go to uh, once it gets back open to the, the Ripken tournament. You know, I'm going to play Ken Ryan's teams uh, from Rhode Island. I've got other guys that played professional baseball around Connecticut, New England, that we're going to play uh, there. So I, I'm going to try and, and grow baseball as much as possible around this area um, so that these kids, you know, have every opportunity to, they can't go pro uh, at least maybe they can get college scholarships and fulfill their dreams. You know, it's I, I, I long ago changed from, you know, everything, you know, about me and my career to helping other kids in their careers. That is terrific. Where uh, the, the beauty of technology is, you know, back in your day, if you were doing a radio show in Connecticut, you couldn't really listen to it. But now, Reds fans can listen to you. So where can they ch- check out the Rob Dibble Show, and where can they follow you on social media? It's on iHeartMedia, mm-hmm. iHeartRadio. Um, they can they can easily, the, the app is downloadable for free. You know, it's 97.9, it's ESPN 97.9 out of Hartford and uh, 1300 out of New Haven. Afternoon drive, um, right? Yeah, afternoon drive, 3 to 7 every day, Monday through Friday. And uh, we have a lot of fun. You know, we, we try to get national guests on a local show. And uh, l- right now we've been doing a lot of stuff with the coronavirus. I have infectious disease doctors on, and uh, you know, prevention guys. The, a, a guy on the Connecticut task force is the CEO of uh, one of my biggest sponsors is, is a, uh, a healthcare facility up here in Connecticut. So uh, we'll get Jeff Flax on and he'll talk about all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's more of a radio show for the people than it is for me and my partner we 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 try to have a lot of fun and and cover all these different angles and stuff like that and uh you know it's it's all about entertainment at this point well terrific glad it's going well glad you're giving back uh by uh giving some youngsters some chances to pick your others brains on baseball uh wish you the best man i'd love this walk down memory lane i could talk to you all day long i think the fans will uh certainly enjoy this trip down memory lane we appreciate you coming on jim it was my pleasure man anytime oh anytime he said it folks he said anytime (laughs) i hate the magic words that's kind of like when you get free golf somewhere on the road and they say you know what come by anytime and it's the magical (laughs) words <laughs> we appreciate it, Rob. Thank you very much. As Rob Dibble, 1990 world champion here on the Jim Day podcast. You can follow along with me on social media at Jim Day TV on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, we'll see you on down the road. So long, everyone.